School, Montessori Education, Preschool through Early College with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville. Building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. RiverReporter.com And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I am very grateful to Dr. Larissa Driska, who has joined me today for this Trailer Talk episode. Let me share some things about my guest today. Dr. Larissa Driska is a retired pediatrician. She was the director of pediatrics at Holy Name Hospital in Tianek, New Jersey. She was a representative to the United Nations Economic and Social Council and is a member of the World Federation of Ukrainian Women's Organizations. Dr. Driska is an advocate for public health on the issues of oil and gas extraction and production. She co-founded Concerned Health Professionals of New York. She is the co-editor of seven editions with the eighth edition about to be released of the Compendium of Scientific and Medical and Media Findings demonstrating the risks and harms of fracking. She is on the board of the Physicians for Social Responsibility in New York. Thank you, Sabrina. It's good to talk to you again. Uh, It's very emotional. Um, There are a lot of tears shed. You know, you see pictures of your friends who were singers or um, photographers. You know, now they are carrying guns. And... They say they're not afraid, that they will defend to the death. So the thought of people that I know going to to do that is very sad. Larissa, is there anything you would like to say to the Ukrainian people? Дорогі українці, ми вас дуже любимо. Ми слідкуємо за ваш кожен крок, що ви робите, як, які ви відважні. Прошу, будьте далі такі сильні, як ви є тепер. Прошу, хай Бог вам допоможе. І бажаю вам всім здоров'я і щастя. Слава Україні, героям слава. Please introduce yourself to our audiences. I was born in the United States. My parents were immigrants from, uh, at that time, Soviet Russia. And um, it was a very, very difficult time. We heard all of these stories about them as we were growing up. And so that impacted us as children. I grew up speaking Ukrainian. I attended a Ukrainian school, a Ukrainian scout organization. So our culture was very deeply rooted in the Ukrainian uh, culture. Um, I've had a chance to travel to Ukraine several times. I met my relatives that we never could visit or spend time with. My father could never visit them when he was younger. Um, and then what had happened to our parents, we found happening to Ukraine again in 2014. 
what happened with your family in 2014 with the uprising, the attacks there from Putin and Russia in Ukraine? Ukraine was newly independent in 1991. And I think that's it's important to, to note that year. Um, they had been a Soviet Socialist Republic, part of the Soviet Union, with very little individual uh, individual ability to um, ha- have their culture and their language. Language was one of the fir- one of the first things that was suppressed by Stalin way back during the early Soviet times, so that Ukrainians would lose that part. And that's something to remember that when you lose your language. Uh, you lose your ability to communicate in with that within the song in the poetry that that uh, is so important to Ukrainian culture. Oksana Mucha singing to Ukrainian soldiers 20 kilometers from the Russian border. It didn't. It it survived. It was not repressed altogether, and especially in the villages, it survived. So, yes, in the eastern part of Ukraine that was subjugated by Russia, by the Soviet system for much longer, I have to say my family lived in the western part of Ukraine, so they had more uh, exposure or occupation by Austria-Hungary and then Poland. Um, So the Soviet system didn't arrive until the Second World War, pretty much. Um, But the eastern part of Ukraine, and that's where the Donbass is, all the areas east of of the Dnipro River are um, lands that were occupied by Soviet Russia. And so because the Soviet system forced only the Russian language to be spoken in schools and any official government business. They forced everybody to 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 be uh, fluent in Russian. All of the schools, the you know schools of higher education. I recall visiting one time uh, uh, back in twenty uh, two thousand and four, a Ukrainian HIV and AIDS hospital, and the uh, doctor there who was very Ukrainian in her soul apologize that she was speaking, um, that she was speaking Russian to me. She said, though, all of our education was in Russian. My, my son, he speaks Ukrainian now fluently. Now, this was into, you know, years, more than 10 years after Ukraine had declared independence. And so people were learning Ukrainian and kids were learning Ukrainian in schools. But before that, and the time when she was and professional schools, especially, were all in Russian. So to say that anyone who speaks Russian is Russian is absolutely not true. It's something that was forced by Stalin and then perpetuated by the Soviet system and Putin as well. You know, that's a fallacy. In their hearts, the people who live there are Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. So in 2014, um, 
Ukraine had shed a lot of this uh, the Soviet system, it took a while, you know, just like uh, any system that people are brainwashed with, um, you have to get out of your system. So new generation had been born, and they were looking toward the West, they wanted the democracy that they were seeing, you know, the internet was beginning to um, show them things that were not available in books. And, and so for them, um, they wanted a piece of this democracy and freedom that was in the West that the European Union represented and that the Russians did not. Because by then it was Russia, it was not the Soviet system anymore. So Larissa, 2014, I know, is a very significant year, not only for Ukraine, and you're sharing that with us, and thank you, and I know you'll continue with some of that history. It's also very personally significant for you. Yeah, well, let me still backtrack to 2004 and then 2005. I returned with some medical supplies for the HIV and AIDS hospital that I just had mentioned and um, happened to be there for what what became a a really big election protest. And that was the Orange Revolution. Mm -hmm. And I um, had a room that overlooked the Maidan Square that square that um, where the orange revolution happened. And then 10 years later, the revolution of dignity where millions of people gathered to show that they really wanted to be democratic. Anyway, the election protest that I attended, I was able to bring a Ukrainian flag to that. Uh, sorry, an American flag to that. I uh, have a cousin, had a cousin there who lived, lived there. He was a West Point graduate, um, Mark Poslowski. And he, uh, was a uh, in business and he lived there, got to really know the Ukrainian people, got to really love the culture. Certainly we already spoke the language, but got to love the people too. And um, so he got me a flag, the American flag. I checked with the embassy. They said, okay, but be careful. So some of the fellows from the tent city that was set up in Ukraine uh, on the street of Kyiv um, accompanied me to the center. When we got out onto the square, applause when they saw the American flag. It was a good sized flag, like four feet by six feet. It was uh, mounted on a, a fishing pole. That's how they did these things at that time. And there were flags of other countries, which is how I got the idea to bring mm-hmm. the American flag because Georgia was there, uh, flags from Poland, from Germany, uh, EU flags, and people from the EU were there at the, um, um, to welcome Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Not that Ukraine was becoming a part of the EU, but they were welcoming this gesture that the people wanted to be a part of the European Union. And so they were grateful that the US was there in spirit, at least their flag was there. Some years later, I uh, had the opportunity to be part of an exchange in Kiyu and in another city called Rivne. Uh, it was an ecological exchange and, and um, the people there, the Ukrainians have some shale plays in the eastern part and also the western part of Ukraine. And there was some talk about developing those shale plays. We had by then been fracking in Pennsylvania, certainly in in, uh, other areas of the Southwest in the United States. So we had had some experience 
and we had already started with uh, compiling the information for our compendium. And as a result, I uh, was able to share my experience in the United States with them. And they were very interested. Um, They also wanted to know about energy efficiency. I mean, they have some other issues. What year is this Uh, now, Larissa? The fall of 2013. Okay, so 2013. What you're describing for us is is a deep relationship as a American Ukrainian with family who has come from the Ukraine, been in the Ukraine, and also as a physician to provide support there when needed. You have, you're describing being there during the Orange Revolution and then also providing other support, humanitarian aid. You also mentioned your cousin. And I just, I think it's important for our listeners to understand what happened with your cousin in 2014 so that we can also encompass what's happening now and what this means, the significance of, of this war that's happening right now. Well, in, uh, 2014, um, by then, um, the Ukrainian people were really quite enlightened as far as the West. And it was a critical time for Ukrainians. This time, they were really looking to the West for treaties, for uh, economic agreements. So it was actually an economic agreement that they wanted to make with the European Union. Then President who was also democratically elected, but who was a puppet of Russia, his name was Viktor Yanukovych, turned around and uh, went to Moscow and signed an agreement instead with Russia for this economic agreement. And this infuriated the people. They wanted nothing to do with that. And so the young people, this was at the end of 2013 and just the beginning of 2014, came out in massive protests. At first, it was just students. And the students who were who came out first were beaten. They were by the special uh, security that was attached to the presidential uh, detail. It was called Berkut. And they suffered so much when the families, the parents, and the extended family, and that includes us here, the Ukrainian Americans, when we saw that, we just we just were in tears. It was so horrible to watch for no reason other than a simple protest that should have been easily tolerated resulted in this conflagration. Eventually, more and more people started coming out. And my cousin started coming out there as well. That unfortunately resulted in the attack as the People were trying to reclaim the city after the Berkut, this security force of Yanukovych, had encircled them. Um, my cousin was a part of that, we found out um, sometime later. But he saw the dedication of the Ukrainian people. He saw how committed they were to democracy, to freedom. So they wanted us to be on their own land. With your cousin, then... Did he become a volunteer fighter? How would you describe the decision he made? Because we're seeing now in Ukraine, many images, volunteers that are picking up rifles that are defending their home. 
So volunteer battalions were a vital part of Maidan. And some of these groups later formed volunteer battalions that became military uh, battalions that went to fight in the east. So Putin uh, invaded uh, Crimea, annexed Crimea, and then sent in his special forces to prop up and support the separatists in the eastern Donbass uh, area. You know, that's the area where the flight was was blown out of the sky. The uh, civilian airline that was flying from, I believe, Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur in August of 2014, they were providing them with all of these uh, anti-aircraft uh, missiles, the yes. uh, missiles that we have. E- there is evidence. You could find that easily on, you know, substantiated evidence that these were missiles that were brought in from Russia. So Larissa, was your cousin killed then during that invasion in 2014 in Ukraine? uh, Yes, he he joined as a volunteer in one of the battalions, the Donbass battalion. And um, in the Battle of Ilovaisk, this Ukrainian battalion was... um, was making some progress, but they were uh, at that point at at a a train depot and uh, one of those type of missiles hit him and, and he died. I'm so, I'm so sorry. Your cousin was killed in Ukraine in 2014 by the previous invasion by Putin. And here we are now in 2022 and the escalation of what's happening now with this war started by Putin against Ukraine. Are you able to share with us what this means for you now? You co-authored a piece in the River Reporter newspaper, which is a local newspaper in Sullivan County, New York, entitled Ukraine Has Already Been Invaded by Russia. Now, this Peace came out on February 23rd. As you know, Ukraine is not a part of NATO. And NATO has as one of its statutes that uh, any country that's invaded by somebody else would be protected under Article 5 of the NATO treaty. So Ukraine had applied. There was a, a memorandum of intent that Ukraine wanted to be a part, but they hadn't gotten there yet. This is a time when the support of all the nations of the world needs to be felt. They are here in spirit. They're with Ukraine in spirit. But um, my hope would have been that Ukraine could have been accepted into NATO by earlier so that this might have been forestalled or not had happened. But that's beyond this discussion. It is not a part of NATO right now. And And so what I'm seeing is Ukrainians being so strong and so brave and coming, they're coming to the fight. They're not going to let Ukraine be subjugated by by Russia again. You say the Ukrainian American community has responded to the Russian invasion with humanitarian support. With a recent Russian military escalation, they have urged the sanction, sanctioning 
of Russian financial, energy, defense, and manufacturing sectors. And, and then you go on and you state, diplomacy is not working to deter Russia. And we are talking about a democratically elected President Zelensky and and a lot of propaganda happening around what Putin is claiming the reasons are for this. Larissa, you've been sharing the history that's led up to this moment in the Ukraine. And I'm wondering if you can share with us what is most urgent in this moment, what you want us to know, and also what you're feeling, because I know how distraught you are over what's happening now. Yeah, you know, just this morning, I uh, saw a link to last night's Saturday Night Live, the uh, New York City's uh, Ukrainian chorus, Dumka, sang a most beautiful rendition of Boże Veliki, of a prayer for Ukraine. It evoked all the feelings, you know, the prayers. When I ask people in Ukraine, what do they need? Please think about us, share any information to dispel any dis- the disinformation that's out there. And please pray for us. So I know that everyone is going to churches, praying, thinking about Ukraine. So, you know, please do that. You know, we've been concerned at the worst case scenario being a full-blown war. Well, we're there. And then the threat of nuclear weapons. This may just be, it is possible, Putin being the big bluff that he is, he's acting crazy. He's acting like someone who is a psychopath. This may be part of his calculated move in order to make the West tremble. So perhaps we should not be as afraid of him as, as he's making us be. We need to make him diminished. We need to make him fail. Ukraine needs more lethal weapons, for sure. They need to repel this aggression, this this invasion uh, that Russia is instigating. So, Larissa, can I ask you, since you are a doctor and you have been in Ukraine providing humanitarian support over the years, and also you're, you as a pediatrician, 
know so deeply the costs of war. How do you frame this for yourself, knowing as a physician what war looks like, what the impacts of that are? Well, we know historically and in our souls what it's like because we heard about the war back when we were children. We heard what it was like. And this is just more of the same. You go through war and you survive. You go through war because you have you have the ideals on your side. You have right on your side. You have you have ethics and you have truth on your side. The thing is, Ukraine didn't go to war. Ukraine wanted to negotiate. But we know that diplomacy fails. Diplomacy in with somebody like this, who um, uh, this kind of a leader fails. So what is important is to support the people. As a physician, I would be there if I could, if I were younger, and I would volunteer. I could. Um, help perhaps in a medical corps. As a matter of fact, what my cousin did as a volunteer, I think more people, Zelensky is actually asking for people from other countries to volunteer. So maybe there will be people who come out to volunteer from other countries. I don't know what arrangements they're going to make, but I know that they can go to their embassy, the Ukrainian embassy in their country and find out. And volunteer. And of course, there are other organizations as well that are asking for support. Larissa, what is your hope for Ukraine? What do you want to see for the future of Ukraine? I wish that um, Ukraine be the country that the people want it to be, a democratic sovereign state that is not dependent on anybody, although I think they value the friendship and and the help that they've gotten from Western nations globally, actually, except for Russia. My hope is that the Russian people come to the understanding, as some of them already have. You know, not, not all Russians are of the same ilk as Putin, but it's going to have to come from the Russians to either change their form of government or change um, their leadership. I trust that there are Russians that can do that because they would be our neighbors. They would be Ukraine's neighbors. And Ukraine would love to have neighbors that are they're friendly with. I would like to see that the Crimea, uh, the Republic of Crimea, because it was a Tatar Crimean Republic, return back under the protection of Ukraine. That's where these people, the Tatars, want to be under the protection of Ukraine and not Russia. And that the Donbass region return to the Ukrainian nation. Thank you so much, Larissa. Is there anything else you want to share with us? Well, people want to help, I think. And uh, one site that I would direct them to is the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. It's uh, UCCA. Org. And there are many other organizations that um, UNICEF, United Nations Organization for um, Refugees, so many are setting up stations in Poland, Hungary and Romania to help the it's estimated that there will be up to four or five million people, mostly children and women. The men bring them to the border, bring their families to the border and they return 
as volunteers to fight in the civil defense force. So Ukrainians are used to that. And by the way, these people who are returning, they need protection as well. They need radios that are functioning. They need um, flag jackets. Uh, they need helmets. They need protective gear. And U.S. Uh, and other countries of the West are perfectly poised to help provide that. To the Ukrainian people, дорогі слухачі, дорогі українці, дорогі братя і сестри, будьте сильні, як ви все були. Ми вас любимо, ви в ваших, ви в наших молитвах і в наших думках. Слава Україні! Thank you so much, Larissa. I've been speaking with Dr. Larissa Driska about what's happening in Ukraine about her family and friends who are there and about the work that she does for human rights, for the environment. And uh, this has been a hard conversation. And I really appreciate Dr. Larissa Driska for taking her time during this incredibly painful time for her and, and for the world. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. Hey, you want to hear a secret? Every week, the Retro Cocktail Hour digs deep into the record library for space-age bachelor pad music, tiki tunes from the 1950s, TV crime, jazz, swinging soundtracks, and more. It's not your father's record collection. Oh, wait. It is your father's record collection. The Retro Cocktail Hour on WJFF Radio Catskill in Jeffersonville, New York. Wednesday night at 8 on Radio Catskill. It's springtime. Time to make things happen. When crocuses come up, they don't wait. They just pop right up. And when the bears stop hibernating, they get right out and find some food. So how about you? Are you ready to get going? Radio Catskills Spring Into Action Fun Drive starts Friday. Your donation now can help make the fun drive shorter. Jump up, be counted, spring into action now. Give now at WJFFradio.org. Thanks. This is Radio Catskill. Listen to us on your smart speaker. Just ask your smart speaker to play WJFF Radio Catskill. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer... From the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. We would listen to the murmur 
love me, love, darling, as you did those starry nights, as we sat beneath that maple Sweet, sweet syrup, that maple syrup, those beautiful sugar maple trees. It's maple syrup season in the Northeast, and spring is on the way in the Catskills. I'm shedding the weight of winter and getting ready to fly like those geese coming back home and the wild ducks on the pond, the robins darting across the road, the streams flowing again, and the rhododendrons uncurling their leaves. Some fun maple syrup facts from Cornell University in New York. Around 300 different natural flavor compounds have been found in pure maple syrup. A sugar maple tree is usually 30 years old or more and at least 10 inches in diameter before it's tapped. Syrup flavor is affected by soil type, tree genetics, weather conditions during the maple season, and when the sap is collected. Maple syrup is produced only in the northeastern United States and eastern Canada. No one knows the exact reason for the higher sugar content of the sugar maple tree. Scientists suggest that it may be related to the structure of the wood and the sugar is stored in the wood. During cooler periods, when temperatures fall below freezing, suction develops, drawing water into the tree. This replenishes the sap in the tree, allowing it to flow again during the next warm period. New York is the second largest producer of maple syrup in the United States. Vermont is the first. Hello, my name is Jamie Noweth. I'm from Mongab Valley, New York. You said you used to make maple syrup as a, as a kid? Yeah, we started making maple syrup. I was probably about 9 or 10, and that was always like the first signs of spring is around the corner because the days would get warmer and the nights were still really cold. And my dad used to tap the trees, and I'd go around and collect the sap, and I would cut all the little pieces of wood to make the fire, and it was a very long process. <laughs> it was, it was it the hours and hours and hours of boiling down all the sap to make that like precious nectar. It was like when you finally got your little gallon after boiling down like 40 gallons and we'd be like, be careful, don't spill it. You know, it's like so precious. The little, <laughs> the little sap that we'd get after, you know, the syrup that you'd get after hours and hours and hours of laboring. How do we know if it's a good or a bad maple syrup season? What would you say this one is? I don't really know. Below freezing at night and then warmer in the day so that the sap flows. That's all I know is about that. So was this something you would look forward to then as a kid? It was. It was. It was, it was fun, you know, running around in the woods and gathering all the sticks and collecting the syrup and checking the buckets to see how much syrup you had. And it was fun. And is your dad still doing this? He actually still is. He just was gathering up all of his maple syrup supplies a week ago and he started making syrup. We just got our first glass jar of syrup from dad. So he has some syrup already. And how do you use your, your syrup? We use it on our breakfast mostly. 
pancakes, waffles, um, oatmeal. And we always, you know, have to, the grown-ups have to dispense it on the children's plates because we don't want them to waste any, not a drop. <laughs> it's so interesting thinking about the different degrees of spring here mm -hmm. in the Catskills and what represents it. So for you, the true start then is the making yeah and then after that is really when like the daffodils start to pop up and the buds start to appear on the trees so yeah the first sign of spring is maple syrup thank you jamie hi i'm carol hipsch what is it that you like about maple syrup it's thick it's sweet it's warm i think it's incredible that it takes 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of the syrup. I just ordered um, two half gallons of it from somebody in my job, along with some maple cream. Do you associate the maple syrup at all with springtime around here in the Catskills? Absolutely. It goes along with uh, Little League, baseball, maple syrup, green leaves, and flowers. I'm delighted to share a previous New York State maple syrup weekend with you from my neighborhood in the Sullivan County Catskills as this year's is coming up. I'm in my car on Aiden Road in Liberty, New York, heading towards Parksville, because today is New York State Maple Syrup Day, and I'm headed towards the Muthig Farm, who will be giving educational tours about the history and making of maple syrup. It's March 19th. I want to focus on my hometown and what people have been doing here for hundreds of years. Oh, we got another tour starting if people get out here. Well, I'm trying to get Waterhawk. So I am now at the Muthig family farm, and you're Dot Muthig? Yes, I'm Dot. Hi. How how long have you had this farm? Well, we started the, we built the first part of this in 1958, and then we added on this part we added on later on. So but we've been making syrup here since 1958. So you've been making syrup since 1958, and we're standing at the entranceway to, what do you call this structure? <laughs> <laughs> we call it a sap house. The sap house, and yeah. I'm looking at steam coming up from a machine in, yeah, in the next room. Yeah, that's called evaporator, and it's evaporating most of the water out of the sap because it's only like 3% sugar content, so it takes a lot to evaporate and to get it down to syrup. So how many pounds then of the syrup to come, I mean, what's the ratio of the sap to the syrup? Uh, roughly 40 gallons to one. That's amazing, 40 so, gallons sometimes to one. Sometimes towards the end of the season it'll be even more. And what is the significance of today being the day of this tour and that you are starting the process of making the maple well, syrup? this is um, New York State Maple Weekend. And we've been doing this now. Last year we did it for the museum the, in Diamond Valley Museum in, that's going to be in Gramsville. So it's more or less in conjunction with the Maple Weekend, which is statewide. How many maple trees do you have here? We don't count trees. We count the, the buckets. The buckets. <laughs> so how many buckets then? Well, we've only got about 500 out yet, but usually we have a little between six and 700. So we, we haven't tapped all of our trees yet. We're waiting for it to get warmer. <laughs> I know. Well, it's supposedly spring, isn't it? The next yeah, day? Tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. Well, the sun is shining. The snow's melting. I'm now walking into the sap house. Oh, and I'll have to speak to you, the man with the gloves on, by this. What's, what's going? So this is, I, whoa, I'm in the sap room. It's warm. Yeah, and uh, right. it feels really great. What's your name? Raymond Muthick. 
Great. I just spoke with Dot a bit about the history of your land here and your trees and the buckets, 500 to 700 per season. So right now, are you making the syrup? Yes, we're making it. This is the first we've gathered yesterday, and we haven't got much sap, but we're boiling what we've got. That's, that's it. And is that because it's been so cold late in the season that you don't have that much sap? Yeah, it gets too cold nights and not warm enough daytime. So uh, you're loading up the wood here then in this huge wood stove, and it's an amazing room. This is where our storage shows. The sap's filtered up here. Oh. Before it goes into that one, comes down into this one. And then if you look inside, this is, this is how much sap I got left to boil today. Very little. We're talking little. under 12 inches. Yes. And then it comes in here, goes into what they call a preheating pan. It heats the sap before it goes into the evaporator. It's going down in the evaporator and just keeps circulating all the way around. And on the other side, I'll show you the difference in the color. Great. So why is it that maple syrup sap is the, the one sap then to, to make syrup from, the one tree that one can make syrup from? Well, uh, Alaska makes it in birch, but the sugar contents is not, it takes double the birch sap to make a gallon of syrup as it does maple. So the maple tree is the sweetest tree then? Is, is the sweetest tree. <laughs> you notice how clear that is? Yep. Okay, now you see this is starting to color. Oh, okay. And if you look down in here too, you'll see it's getting a little darker. Oh, I see. It's not, it's not quite syrup yet. So this trough that I'm looking into, that becomes the syrup that I would that, then that eat? That would be the finished pan. Then once it is syrup, it'll start coming off automatic. And it's filtered through these, all these filters. So it's 40 pounds and of sap to one pound of the syrup? That's the average. I think last year was like 43 gallon. They figured for the whole season, 43 gallon to make one. That's really incredible. So now the process is you tap the trees with the buckets and you have between 500 and 700, let's say a season. Yeah. You then put it into this- uh, We have gathering stations. And then from there it runs gravity to the, the sap house in our storage tanks. And then it keeps running gravity all the way down into the, to the evaporator. So this is a lot of labor then for oh, yeah. a small amount of maple syrup. Do, are you still liking the whole process oh, of this? Well, it's something we've been doing since 1958, so it's something that's, right. you know. Are you still eating maple syrup? Oh, yes. Every, <laughs> about every morning I'm a cook cereal. Really? Yeah. Oh, yes. That's... So it's you, Raymond Muthig, and your wife, Dot Muthig, who run this farm and produce the syrup? Uh, yes. Well, we don't do much farming. I'm a retired iron worker from Newburgh. This was something that we've, you know, done since 1958. And well, thank you very much. I think, is Dot leading the tour? Is that what's going um, on out there? No, I think Dennis. Dennis. Well, thank you. I'd love to come back in here and poke around, but this is, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. To, uh, let's take a walk up the road. No big rush. Everybody, kids, everyone, come on up. It's okay. You take your time. That's good. Any, any place right in here, folks, is fine. All right. We're going to 
I'm going to give you a little bit of history, and again, keep looking around because every every aspect of the sap bush is different, and it really tells a different story. Right now, we're in a section where these single bucket trees, all hard maple trees, they're all uh, first time being tapped. They're approximately 50 years old, and they're ranging in diameter from uh, 8 to 12 inches. There's always been a bit of controversy with the family on how big a tree for the first time. Uh, I'd rather wait till it's 12 inches wide. Uh, the old timer next door says, start him at eight, let's go, I'll be dead by then. So, you know, uh, but the, the, the theory is that you give the tree enough chance to get a maturity and to reach a, a competitive height with some of the more mature trees. But by that time that tree is a hundred years old, there won't be any place left for a bucket. So these first trees here, we'll take a look at some of them if you stay there, but all these first ones in this group are all very young, okay? So this is the first year that they've been tapped. And you'll notice that the hard maple has its traditional moss, but it has white lichen. And that was one of my first first experiences of being able to identify a tree was a white lichen and it only will grow on these hard maples. Now dad always said well you're supposed to look up at the top if it's silver it's soft maple if it's red it's hard maple. Well I'd look up and I'd see the clouds going I get so dizzy I said oh whatever just tell me what to do you know but we have some soft maples in the background and if you look through the woods, you'll see a brownish type bark, good trees with no buckets on. And the bark will be shaggy. And that's a soft maple. And actually our hard maples are, are budded out red at the top right now. So they're, they're really looking for a beautiful day like today. It's a bluebird day, both for fishermen and for the sap bush. We have no clouds, we got 100% sun. Right now there's a little bit of a breeze blowing and that brings the temperature down. It feels cold on your face. It's cold on the top of the trees. So it's, it's not having a chance to interact with the chemistry. And what we want is about a 40, 45 degree day, even more, bluebird day, and let's just take 30, 30 degrees at night, 28 point something. And it just slows everything down enough that when that sun comes up, that sap surges and runs up to those buds. So what we're doing is we're selecting an eastern exposure, a southern exposure, and a western exposure. A, a good run just starting. It's a late year, but it doesn't really matter. It could catch up. Mom and dad could be working 16 hour days for the next week straight, and then it'll stop just like that. They could work two days a week for three weeks, and come up with the same or less statistics. It's a, it's a variable that you have to be there to experience it. Hopefully there isn't a lot of cold and warm in between because if you don't gather the sap every day it will spoil or can freeze and expand in the old time buckets where metal with seams. So if they could expand and break. That's a lot of expense to a farmer back then. We've upgraded to a plastic spile and a plastic bucket just to modernize and, and uh, keep up with scientific and sanitized situations. We eliminated some of the old metals, got really nice pure 
boiling pans, top of the line stainless steel. So even modern technology has trickled down to the, the simplest farmers to make things cleaner and uh, more efficient. What I'd like to do is continue on down uh, over to our gathering wagon. And I want you to notice how the slope of the bush, the sap bush is all graded. We will go to individual areas and there'll be a dump stations. So we're gathering by buckets, going to individual dump stations and it's flowing by pipeline to the next holding area. And there'll be stations all over and we have approximately, I'm gonna say 25 or plus acres of sap bush and everything is pitched and running downhill toward the different storage tanks. So let's take a break and we'll, we'll walk over and everybody catch your breath and uh, we're going to do a little question and answer later on too. So if you just want to hold on to them to the next section. So let's take a walk right on over the tractor path. There's some in the bottom there. I'm looking into the bucket now and it the sap is completely clear. It looks like water. And there, the buckets don't have much in there right now. It needs to hold a bucket that could have uh, 8, 10, 12, 15 pounds of liquid in it for up to three weeks or four weeks. So the person driving the spile in has got a lot of responsibility. And many times the first time around gathering will take a small hammer and just give it one more little tap if we see it wet. But Normally it's, uh, it's, it's quite a good system. First person will go along and drill, the next one will come along and put a spile, next one's got the bucket, the next one's got a lid, and it just, the more hands the merrier, and we don't get paid a lot by the hour, but the, the profits are pretty sweet, so. But we do get to deer hunt here, and, and we farm and sell hay, and we've learned forest management, and conservation practices and so many different things uh, that you really it's uh, it's something that you have to reflect upon we began this tour in front of the sap house and then we made our way up into the woods and now we're, we've circled around and we're passing the gathering cabin and heading back down to the sap house I'm Dennis Muthick I'm the number one son how many are there? There's two. I have a younger brother, Gary. And what does the sap taste like as it's coming out of the tree? It's very sweet water. Very sweet water. And uh, different trees have different tastes, mm. different formulas. Let's Thank you. You know what? I'm never again going to complain about the price of maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, flat pans were in the early 1800s. And then they evolved from that into the evaporators in there. Every year it's something new. Yeah, something new. They're really looking for a beautiful day like today. It's a bluebird day. Well, cool. thank you again. Have Take a great care. day. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Leaving the Muthig Maple Syrup Farm. Barbara Sash, hi. So, maple syrup, springtime. Are you from around here? Yes. We moved up here when I was 18 months old, so I'm a native. I think that would qualify you as a local. Local yokel. <laughs> yes, a local. Do you know anybody that makes their own maple syrup that taps those trees? Actually, I do. I uh, know a gentleman that makes his own and taps trees. Barbara, do you like maple syrup yourself? I like anything sweet. And I didn't even know, I'm not from New York State, I'm not from the Catskills, but I didn't realize that there is so much maple syrup that comes from New York State. Yeah. Do you have any favorite trees? I find it amazing that that 
syrup comes from the sap of the maple the maple trees, and they are so beautiful as well year-round. All different kinds of trees, especially in the spring, when all the different spring-blooming trees come with the spirea and magnolias and all the beautiful trees that we have around here. It's really gorgeous, the lilacs. We have pretty hard winters. It's been a hard winter here in the Catskills. Do you feel something different as spring is approaching here? Energy. Uh, I feel a lot more energy, the sun. I love being outside in the spring. I'm an avid gardener. And just being outside and getting into the soil and the dirt and seeing things pop up, it's very wonderful for me. Do you get your hands in the dirt and do you plant things? Yes. <laughs> what? She's showing me her hands. I don't know if Feel I believe her. <laughs> okay. Yes. I believe her. So what do you plant? Um, you name it, I plant it. A lot of flower gardens, water gardens, perennials. Um, I do some landscaping around for other people also. Thank you, Barbara. Hi, I'm Betty Cobiella. I come from Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm here visiting the Catskills. Well, welcome. You shared with me that you were given some maple syrup, some fresh maple syrup from a friend. So you're taking that back, back to the south with you? Absolutely. It's driving home with me in a, in a special package. My family is awaiting it. It's very special because it's made from a loving friend who made it by, you know, with his own little hands from his own little trees. When did you first find out about how maple syrup is made? Do you remember even when you first tasted maple syrup? Nope, I don't remember first tasting it, but I do remember learning about how it was made. And that was not that long ago. It was as an adult uh, living up here in Coshecton, New York. One spring, my husband went and bought the sprouts or spigots that come out of the tree and we made our own maple syrup that year. How did that go? Delicious, wonderful. I didn't realize it was such a long involved process and took a lot of work. We pretty much did it almost every year after that for a long time and then we had children and we would do it with the kids so that they would learn how it was made and uh, then we moved down south. I don't know if there are any maple syrup trees down there so that's why the little container I'm taking home tomorrow is so very important because... It's homemade maple syrup. How do you use the maple syrup? We use it in lots of ways. Cooking, obviously, um, pancakes, oatmeal, uh, sometimes chicken, you know, honey mustard or something, and we use maple syrup. Well, thank you, Betty, for sharing your maple syrup stories with us. Thank you very much. Have a good spring. Why is spring your favorite time of year? Because there is such a sense of rebirth and regrowth. Uh, it's It just comes screaming at you with the blooms, you know, daffodils and the blooms on the trees and the smell of the air. It uh, really tells you it's here. The, the light of the day is longer. It's just wonderful. So what's spring like where you're living now, down south? We're in upstate New York in the Catskills speaking, but you live in the south. So what's the difference? I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it arrives early. February 1st, my daffodils are blooming. So it comes about six weeks earlier down uh, in the south. Tulips are already up, and the Japanese maples are blooming. and the, It's in full tilt right now down in Charlotte. But we have the, the dogwoods that you have here. Uh, the one thing that's missing in, in the south that we don't have, in the, that you have here in the spring, are lilacs. They don't exist down there. The equivalent for lilacs down there would be crepe myrtle, which is a similar look, but not as fragrant, and don't happen till August. Don't you be wasting all your money on syrup and honey. 
So here's to the sweetness of the sugar maple tree and all of the mysteries that still remain about that sap. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Maple Weekend is an annual tradition that I look forward to each year. But this year, because of the pandemic and safety precautions, the New York statewide official Maple Weekend has been canceled. But we can still support our local producers and pop-up events, and know that the sap will start to run soon as the trees bud and the sky turns a bright spring blue. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power, Ralph Stanley and the Clinch Mountain Boys, Maple on the Hill, Duffy, Syrup and Honey. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel with assistant producer Babe Howard. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. 
Support comes from Restorative Management, a new treatment provider of outpatient substance abuse services, now in Monticello, serving Sullivan County. Are you or a family member impacted by drugs or alcohol? Information and assistance at 845-250-1115 or restorativemanagement.com. From The Cooperage Project in Holmesdale, thecooperageproject.org.